welcome to Stories of Impact. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert, and along with journalists, every first and third Tuesday of the month, we share conversations about the art and science of human flourishing. In our last episode, we brought back the wonder of diverse intelligences and shared the past, present, of the rich and unique community of biologists, sociologists, computer scientists, philosophers, anthropologists, and other experts who make up the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute. Though we can't amazing participant, today we wanted to bring you the voices of more members of the DC community as they share some of their fascinating research that has been funded by Templeton World Charity Foundation grants They'll tell us what they love about what they call adult summer science camp and why interdisciplinary conversations and collaborations about diverse intelligences are more important now than ever. Today, I'll step back and let the science for themselves. I hope you enjoy. I'm Amanda Seed. I'm a professor of psychology in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St Andrews. I work on non-human animal intelligence, mostly human intelligence, children, usually preschoolers. I work at the Living Link Centre to Human Evolution at Edinburgh Zoo, and we have capuchin monkeys and squirrel monkeys on show to the public, but also able to participate in experiments with us. We're going to do their cognitive control, for example, to think about their cognitive capabilities. We also test human children when they visit the zoo. In the past, I've also worked on birds, parrots, and corvids, and chimpanzees. And so I kind of am trying to ensure that the insights we gain are informed by and useful for other members of the community in diverse intelligence. We quite often do comparative work. So it's a study that we're doing with the monkeys. For example, I have a student just now who is on something looking at how they understand multiple possibilities. So the monkeys, we do that by dropping something in a forked tube and the monkeys can search multiple times and we look, if they don't find something, do they recognize where else it could be based on the, what was possible at the beginning? Do it exactly the same way with the children. They don't get peanuts, they get stickers, but it's a, a game that's very simple. We don't talk that much to them. They encounter it much like the monkeys do. So because we're doing it like that, we can test quite a wide age range. Capability to take part. They don't even need to be native speakers of English. And after about 10 minutes, they get a little sticker that says they helped science. Humans are special in lots of different ways. Human children, even by the time they're four or five, capability. They've got theory of mind, they're already really competent with lots of technology, learning language makes a big difference to our adult competence and that kicks in for kids pretty early and you can see the cascading effect of that. Culture makes a huge difference so we stand on the shoulders of giants and that starts also fairly early. So that's why I work with preschoolers. As humans we've always been fascinated in our own intelligence you know, Plato's cave and Aristotle. I'm also that, and I think that nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution. So if you want to understand the way the human mind works, we need to understand the solutions it's evolved to solve. So I think comparison is our best window on trying to what problems we evolved to solve, how we evolved to solve them, and, and what building blocks went into our intelligence. 
And what diverse intelligence allows you to do is to look at how that plays out over multiple lineages in multiple different contexts. What diverse has done, I think, is to really emphasize there's no one way to be intelligent. And what's so cool about diverse intelligences as a community is it's really broadened that out from, you know, traditionally in comparative psychology, based on these large-brained animals like the capuchin monkeys or the crows or the parrots. But I've been to talks in this community on slime mold and snails and plants. So it really broadens your horizons and, you know, social behavior and collective behavior of even single-celled organisms. The opportunities to do this kind of deep comparison have only just become possible in the last, say, 50 years or something. So I think we're realizing an to share what we're learning in these different systems and see if there's things we can learn from one another. People who study the mind, there's always been a multidisciplinary approach because it's a fascinating problem that multiple disciplines have grappled with. So philosophy, psychology, engineering, computer engineering. And occasionally people get together to see if they can, they have common questions and can they share those insights. But it takes effort you have to find your common parlance. What the DEI initiative does is provide a space and provide time and incentive to get over the hump, if you like, of multidisciplinary work. Everyone is very motivated to do what they can if they're interested in those questions, but the ability to share time with one another is really special. We are a global society now, and the fact that psychology has for too long been the psychology of the weird, the Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic humans is increasingly well appreciated. And so that's an opportunity to study different cultures and to look at the impact of culture on psychology and to make sure that we don't misrepresent or misunderstand what is human intelligence, being one flavor of it. For animals, I think, looking forward to 2040, 2050, there's a real risk that these animals might not be available to understand. And so the more we learn about them, we are enlightened about what they can do, how they're similar to us, how they're different to us. The more pressing it becomes that we don't lose any of that diversity. From a, a purely scientific point of view, it would be a tragedy, it would be a lot. But obviously, when you do this work with these species, you learn a real sense of wonder and joy from watching them live their lives, use their intelligence, learn, remember, discover. That makes you really appreciate that we have to make sure we don't lose that diversity. I'm Kat Hobeta. I'm a primatologist at the University of St. Andrews. I work on a project called Gestural Origins. What we really reimagine how we study communication in other species. And what we need to do to really understand the evolution of communication, whether that's the gestures of a chimp or human language, is to be able to compare different species on the same. And by putting those different pieces together, we can really start to map the evolution, the trajectory that different systems took. And for me, the most important thing is that if you understand what someone's communicating about, you understand what they're thinking about. There's a direct kind of line into their minds, into their intelligences.
We're at a very exciting stage in that we're finally starting to have the data set we need to ask the questions that we want to ask about the evolution of language. And take years and years and years to put together. I've been in the field for nearly 20 years. And some of these intergenerational questions just take that long. But what we finally have now is data across eight different species. We have data across multiple, across hundreds of different individuals. And we're up to about 25,000 gestures. Now, with that kind of data set, we can actually start to pull apart. What does this gesture mean? Who uses it? How is it combined with other gestures? So we things like a lexicon, a dictionary. We can look at syntax and grammar. So we're finally starting to be able to actually ask the questions that we've been putting this data set together for. And I also think we have interesting and important questions to ask ourselves. We know something about the other species in the world, about recognizing the value and presence of those other intelligences and our right to have the impact on them that we have been having. So I think we're going in two directions, this sort of haven't traversed and this familiar territory that we're looking at with new eyes and thinking about the way we work in the world. What we can do once we have this understanding of their system of communication is use that to understand what they're communicating about. Now, that's how their worlds are shaped, how their lives are shaped, how they express themselves. And I think it also makes us really rethink our obligation to things like conservation. When you study an individual's communication, when how that is shaped by their relationships with each other, by who their mother was, by what culture they grew up in, what culture they learned from, if they've moved, you realize that every chimp we lose, every group of chimps we lose, absolutely irreplaceable. And I see part of my work as documenting those cultures, documenting those relationships and lives so that we have a sense of what we've lost and so that we have a motive to make sure that we don't lose anymore. And I think you realize the value of the individual and of the communities that you work with in a fundamentally different way. I can tell you that as a human being, I flourish in a rainforest time is when I'm working with the other apes. But honestly, I think that one of the things that I get working with the apes when I'm in the rainforest is that sense of awe and wonder. And it keeps me there every when we're doing 30, 40 kilometers through the sweaty army and muddy craziness of the world that we live in out there. Those moments of connection, those moments of connection with the world, with the rainforest, with the chimps, with I know are incredibly special to me. And I feel that through the work we do, through being able to share not just our findings scientifically, but to give other people, to give the world at large a sense of awe and that wonder of being able to connect with other individuals and with other minds. I think that's something that we can do, and I think it's really valuable beyond the science that we do. We don't have a direct window into their minds. It's also a good reminder that we don't have a direct window into other The opportunity to genuinely exchange with philosophers, with linguists, with artists and musicians to understand how they perceive the work that we're doing and to be able to share ideas opportunity. We've 
considered questions like if we were going to communicate with aliens, how might we do that? And, you know, that's obviously a little bit of a crazy thought problem, but it makes you think, okay, well, what does all of humanity have in common? What do earthlings, what do all of the earth species have in common? It sort of gives you the space to broaden out into what are crazy thought exercises that you can genuinely then bring back into applied ways in our work. And I think this community, both the space and the freedom to think creatively, to work with incredible people who have great resources, and then to consider that fundamental question at the heart of it. My name is I'm a professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester, and I'm also a professor of animal behavior at the University of Oxford. I study animal cognition, various aspects of animal cognition, ranging from physical cognition, so for example, in wild chimpanzees, to social cognition, so how animals learn from each other, what kinds of things they learn from each other, how these behaviors become sort of cultural variants within different animal societies. And I'm also interested in collective animal behavior, said how relatively simple interactions between animals can lead to quite complex group level outcomes. So we were looking at, uh, one example would be how a flock of birds, when they're solving a particular navigational problem, by solving together, for instance, in a flock, are able to learn from the experience that they're exposed to whilst they're solving this problem in a flock. Studying learning has a very long history in psychology and outside of psychology too, but collective learning is something that really been looked at outside of some quite specialized fields like education, for instance. But for us, the inspiration came from the observation that a lot of the time, animals that live in groups will be solving problems in groups, and therefore what they learn contingent on what the group did at a particular time or how it solved that particular problem collectively. These groups are able to learn, for instance, better solutions to problems, because if you put multiple animals, multiple individuals together, the solve a problem and the solution that they come up with often tends to be better than what an individual can produce by itself. Our hypothesis was that this would allow individuals to learn things that they wouldn't have been able to learn if they trying to solve the problem by themselves. And what we found was that the learning process itself didn't differ hugely between individual and collective learning, but the quality of the solution that individuals learned was based of groups solving problems than when individuals were solving problems. So at the center of all of this is collective intelligence, because we know that when you have a group of individuals, you have a collective, each individual in that collective is a different preference or a different opinion about how to solve a particular problem or bring different knowledge to that problem. But when you make them solve this problem together, what you find is that these different opinions, these different preferences get averaged. And so what you end up with, as long as the opinions are kind of roughly equally distributed either side of this optimum, what you end up with is something that's very close to an optimum. When I joined the DI community, I took the name of the community very I was very interested in the idea that we can find intelligence in diverse places, right? But what struck me was that for most people, the idea here is to do with where we can find intelligence in individual agents, whether they 
or whether they're organisms, the kind of focus of interest was an individual agent and its intelligence. Whereas I have been studying collective behavior and collective intelligence, and that's something that I felt was part of diverse intelligence. Collective intelligence is a way of generating intelligence from other intelligences. So it's a sort of level up from individual agents' intelligence. You know, what happens when you put multiple individuals together, each with their own intelligences? What kind of intelligence is then generated? If we were to sort of proceed hierarchically, how far up the hierarchy from, you know, molecules to cells to tissues to organisms to societies, you know, how far up can we extend the scale of things the point is, which of these has its own intelligence and in what sense are those intelligences unique? We're aware of a number of different ways in which society has failed and humans have failed, you know, where we got to the point where our existence is in danger. And, you know, some of these problems are rooted in the fact that we're making bad decisions, either individually or collectively, you know, as a society, we're making bad decisions that are driving a breakdown in a lot of things that thought about. And so understanding what intelligence is, understanding how we can promote better intelligence, better decision making in certain contexts is perhaps a way of thinking about how we can find solutions to some of these breakdowns. Climate change obviously is one of the big ones, but there's stock market uh, crashes, things like that. These are all collective failures. I think understanding what the root of these failures is and whether it's rooted in intelligence or the way we intelligence, especially in a kind of collective setting, I think is very much a driving force for better understanding how diverse intelligences are and how we can you know, combine what we know about them to bring about change for the better. There's something that happens in the transition from individual to collective decision-making that allows better decisions to be made, more rational decisions to be made in groups of individuals as opposed to single individuals making decisions. So we're interested in how both cognitive and social organization shape the extent to which collectives are able to exhibit rational decision-making. The Templeton Charity Foundation has been absolutely instrumental in building this community. I don't think there's another community out there. It's certainly been extremely inspirational for me, especially the kind of interdisciplinary interactions that we've been able to have across, you know, machine, animal and human intelligences. I'm Michael. I'm Associate Professor of Economic Psychology and Affiliate of Developmental Economics at the London School of Economics. I'll give you the punchline first. We are building a large database of cephalopods, so that's uh, octopuses, cuttlefish, squid, and we're all of the data that has been published across the entire literature uh, since the 1800s on these animals, looking at their brain size, looking at various aspects of their behavior, their lifespan, where they live, their ecology, and so on. We're putting this into a giant database. The reason that we're doing this is that we want to test some predictions on what's called the cultural brain hypothesis. Brains are some of the most energetically expensive tissue in our bodies, about 20 times as energy expensive as muscle tissue per kilogram. And so that means that what an animal really has the smallest possible brain that it can get away with that lets it do all these things that it needs to do. So that's in terms of what brains are doing. Now, what are the constraints on the information that the brain can get? Well, one way that brains can get information is from their environment. So, you know, 
or learn as you go. Where is the food? Where is the water? Uh, where should I go and where shouldn't I go? The other way you can get information is not by learning it by yourself, but learning it from other members of your group. So social learning, in other words. Now, what was surprising to us was that there was another pathway of asocial animals. So the first thing we wanted to do was to test these social relationships. Do they actually exist in the world? So the first thing that we did was we wanted to test this on a completely different species. And we thought, well, what species, but is also social and also, you know, has large amounts of data because it's well studied. And we decided that cetaceans would be a good way to do it. So we built a large database of cetacean life history, brain size, behavior. All of these features. We started ambitiously. We thought it would take us a summer. Uh, it took us five years. So we looked around what animals are well studied enough that there is a large enough data set that one could begin to test the relationship cultural brain hypothesis. And if the cultural brain hypothesis did fit those other animals, then it, it would begin to approach something that looked like a general theory of brain evolution. So I really wanted to test this. So there is one animal that people are fascinated by that does incredible behaviors and is incredibly asocial, and that's octopuses. We haven't discovered aliens yet, but there are some aliens on our planet, right? So cetaceans are kind of alien. They live in this incredible underwater world. They have no thumbs, they fire, but at the end of the day, they are mammals, right? They have a basic body morphology that is kind of like ours. They got a brain in the front. It looks a bit like ours. You know, they've got two things at the front. They've got a tail at the back. It's a basic structure that looks kind of like ours. So we need something even more alien to test this other pathway that could have led to intelligence that doesn't look like our pathway. And that's how we end up with octopuses. They are the aliens in our midst, right? They also alien underwater world, but they have jelly-like bodies. They live short, lonely, solitary lives. They've got tentacles, which are probably better than our fingers, so they can manipulate objects in a way that, uh, you know, orca and, and other dolphins can't. We want to test octopuses. My interest is in humans, but if I can show that this theory also works for octopuses, it tells us about the overall evolution of brains across the animal kingdom. In particular, intelligences that we can recognize as being human-like. The octopus is very, very strange, very odd, but doing these incredible things, using tools, unscrewing jars, carrying things around. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen this video of a, an octopus using coconut shells as kind of protection, but carrying it, you know, that's in a very alien species. So it shows not only the diversity of intelligence, but the diversity of human-like intelligence, or at least intelligence that is a mirror to our own. Part of what we have tried to do in this diverse intelligences consortium, this group, this community, is in fact to even think about what it is that intelligence is. For a long time, we assumed the earth was the center of the universe and the sun went around the earth, right? Like, that's what it looks like. Why would I think otherwise? When I questioned that assumption, I got a better model of the universe what intelligence is and what the diversity of intelligence are. We are deeply collaborative and so is our intelligence. How do we figure out new ways of working with one another when we're still trying to work out how humans can work with one another? How do we work with these vast intelligences that are on? I think those are some of the questions that are really at the edge of the possible and perhaps a little beyond. Being able to cooperate at a high scale makes us all more intelligent because of the information that we now have access to. And when we bring on board these artificial kinds of intelligence and perhaps other 
the animal kingdom, how do we cooperate across these diverse lines towards something greater? How do we do that? That's a huge challenge. The problems that we face as a human community require us to work across diverse international communities around the world. But alongside that, the problems that we are trying to solve, many of them are, are about our planet. They are about biodiversity. They are about all of the changes that climate change will bring to our life, politics, to all of that. And seeing the diversity of intelligence, seeing the diversity on our planet, and seeing it both in terms of how it relates to our own intelligence as well as the uniqueness across the animal kingdom, perhaps that gives appreciation of what we are trying to save and what it is that we're trying to hang on to. So I think there's at least a few reasons why this is the right moment in time to be trying to solve these problems. I'm Kristen Andrews. I'm at York in the Department of Philosophy. I'm York Research Chair in the Philosophy of Animal Minds. Philosophers are interested in understanding everything, and so Animal Minds is part of everything. But I think more important philosophers have been interested in understanding mind and how to live a good life and how minds interact with one another for 2,000 years, but they're almost always just looking at human minds. I think it's time that we widen the scope and look at other non-human animal minds and look at traditional philosophical questions about how to be good, how to live a good life, how to engage with one another socially, how to organize ourselves in a good way by looking at how other species are doing these sorts of things. My current research project is on social norms and non-human animals. And in my research, I'm looking to see what sort of social norms we might see in other species. It will help us understand both human social norms and how to change problematic human social norms by seeing the range of different kinds of social norms we see in chimpanzees, social norms that we might see in captive communities, acts or social norms we might see in elephants when they're interacting with farmers and raiding farms. Some of these cognitive mechanisms might be really simple. And if we can turn that lens then back onto humans with a greater kinds of social norms that can exist and the different kinds of cognitive mechanisms that can support them, we'll be understanding ourselves better as well. So oddly, in philosophy in the 1990s, there were still questions about whether even had minds or were conscious or sentient. And I found this quite shocking. So I don't really know that you have a mind in some kind of deep way. I don't have a logical proof. And so when people are now asking, give me a proof that mollusk is conscious, I'm going to say, I can't even give you a proof that you're conscious. Don't ask me to do this for cephalopod mollusks. I think this kind of othering is really dangerous and leads us to wildly underestimate what other species can do. So I've been arguing in my research that we should kind of flip the null hypothesis in science and assume that all animals are conscious. All animals have some sort of phenomenal experience. And I think that next moves the community needs to do is work together to make an argument about how animal cognition research can help produce good research in AI and in neuroscience. That we need to have that 
piece and story in order for the findings in other fields that are very well financed for them to really connect with the world. I heard someone say, a philosopher in every field site today, and I thought, yay, that's exactly what I want to hear. What I was looking for 20 years ago, when I, as a graduate student in philosophy, wanted to get some experience with the science, and I was cold calling scientists, asking if I could come into their lab or go to their field site, and they thought, who's this weird philosopher want to come and hang out with an animal cognition researcher, but now people understand it, and now it's a deep part of the interdisciplinary community that we've built here at DI. The DI community has been really amazing in this. They're philosophers, linguists, anthropologists, primatologists, and other animal behavior researchers. It allows familiarity, and then we have conversations and then we build relationships and sciences about building and you have to trust each other in order to really do good collaborative research and that's been happening and di's been supporting that a lot of species are being threatened in their natural habitats i work with orangutans orangutans i've worked with are largely rehabilitant orangutans because their mothers were killed because their land was being cut down for palm plantations so you have all these little baby orangutans who are now being trained to go back into the forest by humans, trained how to eat. They're very often not released because there's nowhere to release them. And we've got a lot of lack of understanding, I think, among a lot of human populations about the importance and value of different species and the different cultures of the different species. People say, well, it's okay if orangutans go extinct in the wild because we have them in captivity. What they don't realize is that it's a kind of cultural genocide that's happening with these species. You're losing all of this knowledge. The knowledge that humans would benefit from. Knowledge about medicinal plants that might prove to be really beneficial. That knowledge will be gone. This idea of going and looking at other communities just because they happen to be and saying it's okay it's okay if those communities are decimated we really need a new shopping mall or we need some more palm oil or we need an airport that's a big problem and i think in a hundred years if we don't do something differently our grandchildren say wow i can't believe they did that the arc of history among indigenous peoples of North America were probably nowhere close to where they are in the arc of their understanding of other minds, that there's a lot of traditional understanding of other species from living with other species and feeling like they're part of the community. So this kind of knowledge, this deep knowledge that people have of other animal minds from living with other animals kind of knowledge than the scientific knowledge that we extract using our scientific tools and bringing those two communities together indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge I think is a real important next step in this research community my name is Tom Griffiths I'm a professor of psychology and computer science at Princeton University so we're working on what's called a framework project which is about trying to identify a theoretical framework we can use to understand diverse intelligences, so intelligence that we see in the world. How it is that human intelligence differs from machine intelligence. And the observation that, in fact, many of the things that make us different from machines are things that we could cast as limitations. Human beings have limited life, 
We have limited amounts of computation. We can only use you know, the stuff that we carry around inside our heads. And we have limited ability to communicate with one another, right? The way that we communicate is by making funny noises and moving our hands, not by, you know, with transmission of information over you know, networks in the way that computers can. If we think about intelligence as part of a solution, a response to these kinds of constraints, then by looking at the constraints that different kinds of biological organisms operate, the kinds of strategies that they come up with for dealing with those constraints gives us a way of thinking about a kind of space of possible intelligences and marking out where different kinds of species show up in that space. If we look at where current artificial intelligence systems are and just kinds of breakthroughs that have happened in the last 10 years, it's a paradigm of increasing the amount of data and computation which is available to a uh, machine that's trying to solve a problem. And if we actually sort of plot the amount of computation function of time, you see that that computation is increasing exponentially. It's in some analyses doubling about every three months. And that's quite different from human intelligence where we kind of have a finite amount of resources that we're able to use to take on the problems that we solve. And the argument would be that even in that context where we have super intelligent, superhuman machines, human intelligence is still going to be something that has a distinctive flavor. And that distinctive flavor is going to be a consequence of the constraints under which human minds operate. What we want to do is diverse intelligences as solutions to diverse constraints. So when we think about human beings, there's a kind of tradition in psychology of like emphasizing all of the weird and irrational things that human beings do. So part of my life, I live in a psychology department and I hear about how humans The other part of my life, I live in a computer science department. And in the computer science department, Human beings are the examples we have of systems that can solve all of these problems that we want to get computers to solve. And so one way of reconciling those two views is to say, yes, we're limited. Limitations are part of where our power comes from, right? It's that because of those limitations, our minds have developed in ways that allow us to do all the amazing things that we do. And those are the things that lead to this distinctively human flavor of intelligence. So I think if we really want to understand about the nature of intelligence and why it is that we see the diversity of intelligences that we do, we're going to need to tackle that from the perspective of many different disciplines. And if you think about what those disciplines engage with, so psychology, largely individual minds, there's some penumbra of social interaction that's associated with that. Anthropology is about societies, another sort of scale at which we see manifestation of intelligence. Computer science is about intelligence, right? how we make machines do intelligent things. And zoology is about looking at animal intelligences. All of these are different pieces of a puzzle. One of the advantages of being somebody who lives in two different worlds, you can see the connections that exist between those worlds. You know, just as if you grow up speaking two languages, you suddenly discover <laughs> that there are two ways of referring to things and that there's different similarities between words in the different languages and maybe there's similarities between the words. Living in two different disciplines means that you've got two vocabularies for describing phenomena. And sometimes you can recognize, oh, there's one thing in this field that is this thing in the other field. And then as a consequence of having made that connection, if we don't understand this thing really well, we can show that it's connected to this thing and this thing and this thing then we can carry those connections back to the other field. In sort of earlier stages of my career, I would spend a lot of time going to computer science conferences and sort of learning about solutions to a variety of 
problems and then going to cognitive science or psychology conferences and then seeing things that people are studying and saying, oh, that's an instance of this kind of problem. I know from the computer science conference, this is how you solve that problem. So now we can use this solution in the context of this psychology. And then that gives us insight into why it is that people are doing the thing that they're doing. And then likewise, from the psychology conference, you learn here's a capacity that human infants have. Here's a problem that human minds solve. And that gives us inspiration when we go back to the computer science conference to say, made it this far, but you know, here's a thing that we know that people can do, and here's some ideas about how it is that they do it, and maybe that helps us to come up with better machine learning algorithms. We already have AI systems that significantly impact human lives, and things like the system that prioritizes or your Twitter feed, or the news stories that you see, or you know, these other kinds of interactions that we have in digital environments are increasingly mediated by intelligent systems. And so from that, we can already see some of the problems that we're going to have. That we need to think about how those systems are designed and what their consequences are. And in many cases, we don't discover those consequences until they're implemented. And then we have the problem of, okay, now how do we go back and, and sort of unspool this and, and try and regulate it effectively? But I think we shouldn't think about that as a reason not to try and think about how to develop these technologies. I think we should think about it as a reason to consciously develop those technologies in a way where we're thinking about what are the moral and ethical in parallel with you know what are the technological possibilities this is an interesting moment where we've seen a sort of move forward in what machines are capable of of what artificial intelligence is capable of at the same time as our world is experiencing a massive reduction in biodiversity on the one hand, this demonstration of a new kind of intelligence. On the other hand, a threat to the existing biological intelligences that we have. I think, you know, just as a linguist wants to understand language by going out and collecting information about all of the languages that exist in the world, anybody who wants to understand intelligence should be interested in all of the manifestations that we see in our environment, right? Like, if that's the thing that we want to understand, Gathering information about the diversity of intelligences that we see is going to be a key to doing that. I think those two forces, one of the question of what intelligence is and you know, how it manifests, being increasingly at the forefront of questions that our society is dealing with, and the other, the risk of losing some of the information that we could use for answering those kinds of questions really motivate this being the right moment to ask them. I wish we could go on, and on, and on, because there are so many incredible visionaries in relationship with the Diverse Intelligence's Summer Institute, and I am dying to hear more how TWCF supports their bold explorations and where their research will lead them in the future. We'll just have to plan to revisit this conversation again and again in the years to come. I wrote this episode as the grackles and morning doves shared the bird seed I put out for them this morning. My sweet dog Maddie is lying at my feet as I record my narration of this episode, and when I've finished it, I'll go give my kitties their taking a walk around the neighborhood and saying hello to Gus and Violet, the two awesome kids who live next door. I know that after what I've learned in the last few years about diverse intelligences, I'm more curious 
and in awe of all these diverse intelligences and these diverse species than I ever would have been without the stories of impact. I hope this program is expanding your experience of the wonder, mystery, and as well. In our next couple episodes, we are returning to another important topic we've considered in past seasons, polarization. What it is, what each of our roles is in countering polarization's on politics, society, and our own communities, and how we can resist the seductive trap of binary thinking before it overwhelms our capacity for nuance and wisdom. I hope you'll join us for these most interesting In the meantime, thanks again for following our podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you'd help us grow our audience. As I've said before, most podcasts are discovered through referral, when fans who love the show people about it. So please share stories of impact with other curious souls like yourself so we can reach new listeners. And it really makes a big impact for us if you not only follow the podcast, but if you give us a five-star rating and leave a share. You can always retweet us or share our Instagram or Facebook posts. And if you want to go back and listen to past episodes, you can find all of our conversations on your favorite podcast player or at storiesofimpact.org. Stories of Impact podcast with Richard Sergey and Tavia Gilbert. Written and produced by Talkbox Productions and Tavia Gilbert. Senior producer Katie Flood. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Michelle Cobb. The Stories of Impact podcast is generously supported by Templeton World Charity Foundation.